What would it take to arouse your life, to experience more connection, more pleasure, more realness in and outside of the bedroom? I'm August McLaughlin, and this is Girl Boner Radio. How are you? Does anyone else feel like that's a bit of a loaded question lately? How about this one? How are you feeling right now? Mental health is always an important issue. Since the start of the pandemic, it's become an especially difficult challenge for so many people, especially those who were already struggling. I can probably safely say that we have all felt challenged in one way or another. Maybe you're really struggling today or every day. No matter how you are doing mental health-wise today, where your moods are at, you and your feelings are so welcome here. And I'm thrilled to share this special episode, which includes several important voices, stories, and messages around this topic, as well as an awesome resource, How Right Now, with you all today. Ellen Kahn is the Senior Director of Programs and Partnerships for the Human Rights Campaign. HRC is 40 years old and the nation's largest civil rights organization focused on achieving full equality for the LGBTQ community. As a civil rights organization, a lot of their work is focused on passing federal and state legislation and legislation at the municipal level to advance LGBTQ equality, They have folks lobbying on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. every day and at the state level to pass protections for the community and to keep anti-LGBTQ legislations from passing. Ellen said a lot of people are familiar with this work that HRC does. Well, we also do a lot of work on our nonprofit side, which is where I am, and we do work to change systems to be more inclusive and affirming. So that means working with hospitals, community-based health centers, child welfare agencies, K-12 schools, uh, higher ed, workplaces of all types and sizes, including some of the largest employers in the country, and really creating benchmarks within those systems that the leaders of those institutions and organizations can strive to meet. And as they meet those benchmarks, it means they are really building the scaffolding internally, written policies, staff training, best practices, so that LGBTQ folks who are interfacing every day with these institutions of daily life are more and more having a better experience. Ellen told me she never imagined growing up one day to do this kind of work. She wasn't quite sure what she wanted to pursue professionally until her mid-20s. And ever since, this career path has felt deeply personal to her. I started doing HIV work um, as a 24-year-old young lesbian trying to sort of find my feet under me career-wise. I just, you know, couldn't really land on anything. But as people in my own circle of friends started getting diagnosed with HIV and, you know, some dying of AIDS, which back then was pretty much your outcome, it really um, inspired me in the direction of social work and in in the direction of understanding how our systems of care work, um, how to, you know, advocate for, for better treatment, 
be it healthcare, mental health. I'm so honored to work at HRC. I've been there 15 years. Actually, last week was 15 years. So, I mean, I just, I love the work. It's meaningful. The people I work with are definitely my extended family. We kind of fare the, the good and bad weather together. I asked Ellen when she realized the magnitude of potential challenges the COVID-19 pandemic would have within the LGBTQIA plus community. She said it didn't take long. About two weeks into the, I think, common understanding we had in early March that this was going to be a big threat to our health and change immediately how we worked and what we did, um, we started to hear about and hear from people in the LGBT community that were feeling scared, that were losing work, losing their jobs, losing health insurance, all of those things that, like for many people, came quickly and and really created a lot of fear and instability. And then we quickly pivoted to try to do some research and really understand in, you know, with, with evidence, if you will, how COVID both initially and then over these last 10 months has affected the LGBT community. To answer your question, honestly, I don't think we knew right out of the gate um, what this would mean, but we, looking back now, knowing, knowing what we know today, we can speak to that in an informed way. As uh, I think you know, and many people know that there are some communities that tend to sort of bear the brunt of health disparities because of historic institutions like racism and homophobia and transphobia and, you know, different communities that are undervalued, disenfranchised, particularly in healthcare and and in mental health. And the LGBT community is one of those communities. And then when you kind of go a layer deeper, brown and black LGBTQ people are kind of duly impacted because they have two identities that are those identities we tend to, again, devalue or sometimes disenfranchise from many of our institutions of daily life. So, you know, pre-COVID, we know from decades of research on the LGBT community, both, you know, youth, seniors, the general adult population, that we report higher rates of depression, anxiety, substance use, you know, challenges with emotional well-being that are a direct result of being a stigmatized population, a population that faces discrimination, experiences bias. And again, just echoing that if you are a black or brown or other person of color and you are queer, trans, LGB, you are carrying more of that burden. And it's physical health as well as mental health. Even for folks who are considered motivated to seek help, many of us in the LGBT community have had past negative experiences. When we sought health care, we had providers that were not competent, were not affirming. Sometimes we're not sure where to go, who to call, what therapist is going to be, you know, the right fit for me. And if you're in a, in a more rural community or you're in a community that is under-resourced, it's even harder sometimes to find those folks and those resources that are clearly LGBTQ inclusive. So that all was real for queer folks and trans folks before COVID. 
And, you know, then COVID shows us in a really terrifying way that if you're already in one of those vulnerable or higher risk groups, the impact of something like a pandemic has a, has a disproportionate negative impact. Thomas Davis, an ambassador for the HRC and the founder, artistic director, and project lead for the Creative Remedy and Education Workshops, knows these impacts well. He grew up feeling loved, but quite different from most everyone around him. He learned very little about sex or sexuality, which presents unique challenges when you're gay, as he is. And he, like so many folks, has had to figure out how to navigate these zany times known as 2020. For me, uh, growing up in Colorado, it was great. I had a beautiful, amazing childhood. Um, My family, um, they adopted me from birth and I grew up there. Uh, So, you know, they just gave me an amazing life. It was a very small town though, so I stuck out. I was the only black kid in my grade. Me and my brother were one of the few in the entire school. So it was predominantly a white community. And then there were like some, um, some people of like Mexican heritage and, and background that were there. But, you know, other than that, it wasn't very diverse. So I was, I, I really stuck out. I was like one of the boys that liked to sing and dance and act. And like a lot of the guys didn't do that. So, um, yeah, I just always stuck out. But, you know, I, I, I did have a lot of love from people there. Um, there, of course, were people that um, when I came out, you know, later in, in high school that were really, you know, hateful and like, you know, but overall, like I had a lot of support, you know, growing up. And do you remember learning anything about sexuality or sex when you were growing up, either in school or from your family or, or anyone? You know, what's so funny, and I don't think I've ever really said this out loud to people, but my first thing um, as a kid hearing about sex was when me and my friends, um, you know, we would, we would, we would um, play make-believe or whatever, and we all would pretend like we had boyfriends or girlfriends, and we would say, you know, that when we went home, we would do what we called blank. We called it blank, literally. And just like, I don't know, it was always this thing that was never really talked about until you got to fifth grade where they had this thing called the talk, where, you know, they basically just talk about puberty. They tell you, like, all the boys, we just learned about ourselves, and then the girls learned about us and them. And, you know, as far as that, like, as far as learning about sex, though, and, like, kind of, you know, about consent, condoms, um, STDs, all of that, it's really crammed into one quarter Uh, really one like small like section and chapter that was a quarter in our health class. You know, when I was in high school, you know, we had a doctor, he was a, what, a GBYN? OBGYN, like obstetrician gynecologist. Yeah. So he like came in and he like answered questions, but the way it went, like, cause Colorado is one of the places where people that have religious exemptions can like take their kids out of it. So it was like, all of us had to write questions down and then they submitted them and then he would draw them out of literally out of a hat and would like read them and answer them. Do you remember any of the questions? Yes. One of the ones that I remember, it was just a statement. It was, um, I have a burning sensation when I pee. It was a joke to all of us. Just because we could tell like it wasn't being taken seriously. It wasn't being addressed. So we didn't take it seriously. Yeah, of course. Because why, why would you? 
and there's like this shroud of secrecy around it. So it kind of makes it taboo and therefore funny and mysterious. Oh, I think too, one of the things that I honestly didn't even realize until like, you know, um, and, until like my kind of the age I'm at now, like talking to my high school friends and peers that I grew up with and talking about the things that we didn't get, I didn't realize that a lot of them were sexually active when they were in middle school and you know high school there were a lot of things that because I wasn't heterosexual I like was really not privy to you know people that like you know slept with each other like I I like really had no idea like it's it's interesting you know talking to my high school peers again and kind of like looking back and they're like telling me all these crazy stories and I'm like oh I never really got to have a coming of age thing like that during high school I had to wait for like college Do you remember how it felt to sit in sex ed and learn only about like penis and vagina sex and how you should avoid it and that it was so heterosexual? What's even crazier is one, we didn't, they wouldn't even call it sex ed and we didn't even talk about that. It was like, you know, we looked at the charts and stuff, but that was about it. It was literally focused on just the biology of it. The way they did the curriculum with that, it was, it was, uh, it was a joke. We made a poster one day, um, we were given topics one day, we went to the computer lab the next, and we had the poster and the presentation and the chapter was closed. Wow. And that was it. That was it. Oh my gosh. I remember being in sex ed and learning about some kind of STD you could get from sitting on a toilet seat. And that just stuck with me. And what was crazy too was for me, uh, literally the message and what I even said to my friends, what I said to like other people was, well, I don't got to worry about it. I can't have, I'm not going to give anybody pregnant. So I don't got to worry about, y'all got to use condoms. Like y'all got to worry about these stuff. Like I don't have to, because, you know, I really didn't think I was like, oh, well, if I did, they would tell me. And when in your life did you look back on that experience and go, wow, my life would be very different if I had had comprehensive sex ed? when I was diagnosed with HIV, honestly. And that was kind of this big thing where like, because for me, literally, I like didn't really know what it meant. There was a feeling of fear just because I was like, okay, I know people get scared of this. You know, I had seen Rent, but like, it's a musical. It's, it's, it's people that are like, you know, like really struggling and stuff. So, you know, like I, it wasn't like, I didn't have stuff I could relate to. So when I looked up stuff and I was doing my own research and looking at data and figures and numbers, I was really like, why the hell did I do? Didn't I learn about this? Like, this is, this is crazy. I was actually really upset because I felt cheated. And this was also at a time to where um, a lot of the stuff with police brutality was just, you know, uh, not not happening because it's been happening, but when it was popping up. So it was like dealing with, you know, those uh, truths being brought to light. It was just, it was a lot at once. That kind of just really made me um, honestly a little bitter about, you know, kind of my education and schooling. Understandably, yeah, to go, this information would have been incredibly helpful in so many different ways. At what point in your life did you decide to start speaking openly about your experience with HIV and and also you're really an advocate and you work with HRC? Was that a gradual decision or was that something that you really pursued? One of my friends, actually, that uh, we we were both like, you know, in the closet and gay and met each other on, on AOL Instant Messenger. So we stayed friends for years. We met in like middle school online and stayed friends for years. And then after I was diagnosed and after I saw everything that I was seeing and learned everything that I learned, you know, I wanted to tell my story because I was like, 
I'm still like doing what I love every day. I was dancing. I was very happy. And I was like, you know, like this really isn't that bad of a thing. And I was like, okay, for me to be able to take this and to have support from my friends and family, like I need to do something. So I made a video and I actually sent it to him. And I was like, hey, so this is something that I wanted to share. You know, could you help me share it? And, you know, he definitely helped me share it. And the human rights campaign featured the video. And, you know, I released it on my Facebook page before that. So it was kind of like, I got a lot of great responses. And like, I really just wanted to share my story and to kind of like, you know, I thought, oh, if I share it, somebody else will see it and they'll step up and share it. And it like, it just didn't work out that way. But people were still supportive. One of the uh, representatives from HRC uh, reached out to me um, after Noel had shared it with them, asked me, you know, if I'd be interested in, you know, being a youth voice. That was the when they first started the first group of youth ambassadors. And, you know, when a lot of conversations nationally were about including young people in decisions, you know, instead of, you know, creating programs and stuff that, you know, aren't effective, like really like hearing from us, getting our experiences and our input, because we're the, we're the experts with lived experience. So. It just catapulted from there. You know, I got gigs at high schools to travel and go and talk to them at colleges. I went to Oregon um, to Linfield College and talked to uh, an entire, you know, like two, two classes of people that were going to be doctors and that they had never talked to somebody that was living with HIV before. It really just blew up when I didn't expect it to. I really thought I was just going to be kind of a one-off thing and like be like, all right, bye y'all. And it just, I don't know, I, I, it kept me around. <laughs> That's really important work you're doing. I really appreciate it. I'm curious if at the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, as somebody who speaks out, I think that when you speak out in the ways that you do, there can be this sense of you're kind of a mentor to people who maybe you've never even met before, right? Did you feel a sense of responsibility to advocate and, and speak out in the community about what was going on with them? Yo, like it was huge. I mean, and just like looking at just the parallels on how people and how the news cycles were going, you know, from what I've seen in the 80s and like now, and even looking at like when there was SARS, like mad cow disease, West Nile, like all these things. Yeah, I felt a lot of responsibility. You know, I was definitely one of the people that was, I, I'm not on, really on Facebook anymore, but I was on Facebook every day doing lives, being like, all right, y'all, let's do some yoga. Let's listen to some music. Wash your hands. Like, really was trying to, like, motivate people. It really, like, did a number on me and got me real exhausted. Um, but, but, yeah, that's something that I deal with a lot, actually. A lot of us in public health and HIV work specifically, like, felt like we had a lot of pressure on us to, you know, kind of lead the charge and to be optimistic and to give people, you know, answers when really we didn't even have them. Yeah, that is that is really huge and layered and the news changing constantly trying to keep up. I can imagine that being so much energy. And then you as a person besides this platform that you have, having your own challenges, how did you mm -hmm. feel mental health wise at the start or early on in the pandemic? Yo, I would go to the store just to be around people. Like it was, it like, you know, it was a lot. And like, I laugh about it, but when I'm like, no, like I seriously went to the store, walked around and got nothing to be around people. You know, I mean, for me, like me and um, one of my neighbors, two of my neighbors, we like kind of started quarantined together and we all were just kind of like, what the, what the, what the fuck is going on? Like, you know, I remember the day that things really started to shut down. 
we had a friend that was coming over and we were all going to chill over in my neighbor's apartment. You know, he was bringing some wine. We were like, all right, like, let's just chill. Like we're going to, and he, we couldn't even have a visitor. And we just like sat there and thought about what was happening. We were looking at the news and it was just, it was really surreal. Depression has hit us all in different ways. For me, it definitely was, it definitely was something that um, hit me hard at the beginning, just because it was kind of like, all right, like, what do I do with myself now? Like, how do I connect with other people if I can't see people? Like, virtual stuff really just kind of showed me how much we really need other people, you know? It was a lot for me to come to terms with, because, you know, well, I turned 28, like, literally, like, three weeks into the epidemic. I was mad. My birthday was ruined. <laughs> I don't know. It just really forced everybody and myself to just, like, stop and, 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 and pause. I don't know, it was really difficult and really surreal because it was like, oh, like I had never felt so powerless before. How have you learned to cope? What's helped you along the way, maybe early on and, and today? Music has become very important to me. Like the type of music that I'm listening to, like I can't listen, even though I love you know, sad songs and how beautiful they are. Like, I couldn't listen to them. I was like, nope, I can't do this. I can't do the negative stuff. I think connecting with friends that I hadn't, like, really talked to, like, really looking and seeing the people that, like, reached out to me and that I found myself reaching out to and thinking about, it definitely made me feel really good. And it, and it was some really beautiful, you know, some really beautiful moments that, you know, may have happened virtually, but it definitely was kind of like, like all right, like, I, I, I feel like people are, you know, valuing me, they're checking on me, you know, we're all trying to figure out how to connect with each other. How are you feeling with the holidays coming up? I've heard from people who are a little relieved that they're not going to be around family because it's not a comfortable situation for them to go home for the holidays. I've heard from many people who are really, really heartbroken that they're not able to connect with either their blood relatives or maybe their chosen family. I will not be going home for the holidays, not just because of COVID, um, just with the way the elections have turned out. And it's just kind of a thing where I'm like, after this year, I don't think I want to end the year around that holiday stuff, tensions high already on top of 2020 and an election year. You know, so I won't be going home, which actually does make me really sad. But at the same time too, I know like, it is so much better for my, for my mental and for my emotional well-being because right now I'm just like, I am liable to snap, you know, um, if I have to walk in and see, you know, Fox News on there like I always did growing up or Glenn Beck or Rush Limbaugh or like all these things. I'm really at this place where I'm like, you know, being the age I am now, I'm like, no, like I'm almost 30. Like I don't, I'm not a kid anymore. I don't have to take this from y'all. You know, all that mixed together on top of COVID. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I so appreciate you sharing that because I imagine so many people want to make that decision and they feel really challenged for so many valid reasons. Feeling so vulnerable. How do I, how do I take that stand? Feeling guilty about it, all these mixed emotions. And to hear you say, I'm going to take care of myself. These are the boundaries that I need. That's beautiful. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to. I mean, like, I'd love to go and see my little nephew and my niece that I didn't even get to meet. She was born April 
third, maybe something like that. So, you know, um, you know, that was in the midst of, in the beginning of it. So I haven't even gotten to see her or anything. And who knows when I will get to meet her. What, if anything, is giving you a sense of hope right now? I mean, I think, you know, just in general, um, just looking at, of course, the election results give me hope for sure. Um, And not even just like, just the fact that this is the largest turnout ever, both for Republicans and Democrats, just lets me know that like the young people, even the ones that I don't see eye to eye with are really stepping up right now. I also get hopeful just with the fact that, you know, I, I don't know, whatever I'm doing is, is, is working. I haven't gotten COVID. I've still been able to, to connect with my friends, the people that I can, you know, of course, being as safe as I can when I do it. But I think what's been really cool is looking at just, you know, the, the, the way that humanity finds a way to still connect and support each other. You know, I've seen a lot of live stream apps get really popular and people, you know, getting more into like, podcasting and YouTubing and and it's kind of this thing where I'm just like oh like this is kind of like where I felt like the future was going already and this kind of catapulted it into that you know when I think about 2020 as frustrating as it's been it hasn't been that bad to me it really hasn't when I think about it and like I decide to like let go of all like these little petty first world problems People are still trying to connect with each other, still trying to find peace and still, you know, keep a sense of camaraderie. Absolutely. What would you share with someone who's really struggling emotionally right now? That's hard. Um, I think writing down the things that make you anxious and fearful and then kind of looking at them and, and really just dissecting why. I, I feel like a lot of times we carry a lot of fear around um, because we're like dealing with things that are unknown. And I feel like when we focus on that fear and we're like, well, I'm afraid of this happening, so I'm not gonna do this, or I don't want this to happen, so I'm gonna do this. Um, it's kind of like you're making a decision off of something that hasn't happened yet. And it's like, when you make a decision based on that, it's kind of giving it permission to manifest where you could focus on something else instead. You have to debunk your, your own thoughts. <laughs> I really like how that gives you a proactive thing you can do too, because if you keep the thoughts in your head, because I, I know ruminating thoughts well, and if you just let them sit there, they fester and getting them out in that way sounds really therapeutic to me. Definitely. Attempted, I've been successful and I've failed at, at, at doing it. I think it's just kind of a process and just seeing, you know, just trying things, you know, just, you know, just sitting and having a conversation with yourself and understanding why we feel the things that we feel. As soon as Dr. Amelia Burke Garcia, the program area director at NORC, at the University of Chicago, and director of How Right Now, told me about this mental health coping and resiliency initiative. I knew I wanted to share it with you all. How it came together is pretty fascinating. Imagine something you've done that takes a lot of time and energy and planning, say a college thesis, planning a wedding, writing a book, learning a new language, Now imagine having to get it done not only extremely well, but really quickly in order to have the impact you wish to have. 
That's sort of how How Right Now had to proceed once the pandemic struck. We began um, working with uh, the CDC Foundation in, in collaboration with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to develop uh, what eventually became known as How Right Now by conducting rapid but robust formative research. And what I mean by that is as part of the pandemic response, this was a project that moved very, very quickly. And so we conducted the research between late April and approximately early July. But in that time frame, we were conducting a range of different data collection activities. So things like an environmental scan, social listening, partner needs assessment calls, online focus groups. We conducted informal partner convened listening sessions with community members. Uh, and we also did a national survey. As opposed to a perhaps quote unquote normal campaign or initiative development process, in, that, in those cases, you might actually conduct the research, develop your messages and your audience personas based on that research. Then you would go and test those with your audiences and refine and maybe retest and then refine further and launch. In this case, we were working within such a tight time frame that doing them sequentially, we had to do them iteratively. And so we were learning as we were going, developing audience personas, uh, refining those as we learned more, developing messages, testing those messages, refining them, retesting them as we had sort of uh, different phases of the formative research process staggered. And then we were able to sort of do everything within that sort of truncated time period to be able to launch just about three months after we started. Early on in the pandemic, they recognized that everyone would probably be struggling because of COVID-19. But certain communities were identified as being at higher risk for emotional health or well-being challenges, including people age 65 and older and their caregivers, people experiencing economic distress, people experiencing violence, and people living with pre-existing physical and mental health conditions. Within each of those, we recognize that certain subgroups like racial and ethnic minorities and sexual orientation and gender identity minority groups uh, would, would also be struggling. And so what we aimed to do through the research process was talk to uh, many of these uh, members of these communities. We wanted to understand kind of how they perceived the idea of what they needed to cope, what they needed to be resilient, um, what role resilience played in their experiences that they were going through. We also wanted to know what um, sources they trusted, where they were going to for support and coping in the moment. Um, but also then sort of the counterpoint to that was where there might be gaps and the things they needed but weren't available to them. One of the gaps they discovered was a lack of culturally appropriate Spanish resources for mental health, coping, and resilience. At the time, available resources were primarily just translations of English versions, and therefore not entirely helpful. Amelia and her team also learned what people who may be especially struggling right now are really longing for. You know, what we heard from the groups that we talked with was that, you know, they really wanted to have their experiences validated. They really wanted to feel that they weren't alone in those moments. They didn't want fluffy content. They wanted real, actionable, low-cost, low-barrier to entry solutions, tips, tools that they could use in their everyday life. One of the things that I always sort of reflect on and, and sort of share with people is they didn't want to be told to just go do yoga. 
people were and are um, experiencing um, real challenges, whether that's to put food on the table, pay rent, deal with a very sick, uh, you know, loved one who maybe they couldn't see and maybe cannot see um, that all that often because of social distancing mitigation um, strategies. You know, people struggling with, you know, being at home with kids and loved ones and trying to manage work. And there were just a lot of stresses. And especially for people who were still um, going to work if they had to, but also maybe caregivers to people who had pre-existing conditions or were what people who were living with pre-existing conditions themselves. You know, there's just a lot of worry and fear course, social isolation and loneliness. And so we really tried to distill out, you know, what were the most salient um, concerns for each of those groups, and then identify where there were existing resources that could be useful to them. And if there were gaps, really try and develop new materials that would help fill some of those gaps. All of those resources live at the How Right Now website at howrightnow.org. Based on all of the formative research Amelia described, How Right Now settled on the idea of centering resources around people's emotions and how they're feeling in a given moment. And in part, Amelia said, that involves wanting people to better understand how they're feeling and then tailoring resources for those emotions. How Right Now has one-pagers on various emotions, all developed and vetted by a panel of experts including clinical psychologists. They wanted to not only give people tools, but help them gain understanding of their experiences. And so when you come to the site, you're brought to the homepage and it's organized by emotion. And so we ask you, how are you feeling today? And then you're able to go in, depending on how you're feeling, and click on a button, anger, worry, and get to a sort of curated list of resources that um, speak to that emotion and help support coping strategies that can address that emotion. It's also worth noting that we wanted to make it okay in this from again basing it in the research we wanted to validate that people were not alone that other people were feeling the same way and that it was okay to have these different varied emotions and so we really wanted to frame the experience as it's okay if you're feeling any of these ways, we want to help and support you and, and, and sort of in that way, make this a comfortable environment for somebody to explore. I gave the site a try myself and really love how user-friendly it is and vibrant. It's very welcoming and visually appealing. And I also appreciate that you don't have to even know how you're feeling. One of the options is not sure. Thomas explored the How Right Now website as well going through and I was looking at it I was like this is actually really great it kind of like helps people know all right this is how you can navigate your emotions your depression your fears like so I think that's great it makes me think of those things in like Cosmo magazine where it's like did you do this no go here or yes go here and I just feel like you know the interactive potential for that website is huge Thomas added that he hopes it'll be an app one day as well Ellen told me that helping folks get emotional support during the pandemic has been an especially big priority for HRC, too. A few months ago, they created a resource for the LGBTQ community that breaks down some of the myths and fears about telehealth and teletherapy. Ellen told me she thinks How Right Now is a terrific resource for folks in the trans and queer communities and beyond. 
I think it's a great site. And, you know, we were really, uh, HRC was really proud to be invited early on to give input, to make sure that, you know, the information can land with folks regardless of their sexual orientation or gender identity, that it's kind of um, inclusive in terms of the language and the message. I mean, there are just some shared human experiences that kind of, you know, um, that, that are, you know, beyond who we love, who we are, and that are really just about how we feel as humans. And um, I think that's what I really like about these resources, that they can resonate with pretty much anybody. And so that is another resource I would recommend for literally anybody. Amelia said that making sure that How Right Now has resources for specific marginalized communities, including LGBTQIA folks, has been a goal for the initiative since the beginning. They wanted to curate resources that support mental health, emotional well-being, coping and resilience, while at the same time acknowledging that people in certain populations are struggling to have their basic needs met folks enduring violence or who need job, housing, and food security. So what we really tried to do was provide both tools and resources that supported mental health, but also tip lines, support lines, job resource information, food bank resource information that would actually help address some of those other needs that they may be having right now. And two of the ones that we have for uh, the LGBTQ community include the Trevor Project Hotline and the Trans Lifeline. So those are two that I would highlight here as relevant to this population. Um, However, I would suggest that many of the other resources that are there, even though they may not be tailored for LGBTQ, may still be useful to this community. How Right Now will have new resources rolling out aimed at helping people this holiday season soon. If you are really struggling lately, Ellen wants you to know that there are people who are willing and available to talk to you and provide a non-judgmental ear. There are professional resources and a national network of LGBTQ health centers in dozens and dozens of cities, many of which are now providing telehealth. She also told me that while she has her share of challenges herself lately, such as knowing that her older daughter will be coming home from school, but not staying with her because of COVID. She will really miss those hugs and usual festivities. There's a lot she has been cherishing as well. My kids, without question, my two lovely daughters, I'm feeling very grateful for my wonderful spouse. You know, we've been hunkering down together now all this time and uh, just, you know, we're kind of anchoring each other and having, you know, lots of fun times, laughs. Um, it's been just great to have her as a kind of constant during this time. Amelia told me she misses her family who live a distance away since she hasn't been able to travel. She also misses live music and looks forward to when we can all enjoy those experiences together in person again. And when she thinks about personal gratitude, several things come to mind. I'm definitely grateful for my health and the health of my family. Um, And I'm also really grateful for this project. I know I'm here talking about this project, but I do think it really aims to help people in a meaningful way. And I do hope that it does. 
Um, but I'm grateful that there are resources out there that can try and that are really aimed at helping people through this time. Thomas told me he's especially grateful for his two biological brothers he connected with recently. He said he would walk across hot coals for them any day. Thomas's life has really shown him time and again that while things can get really, really tough and painful and frustrating, they can also be pretty beautiful. I think I'm really grateful for the connections I've been making with new people, um, the friendships I've built, you know, out of, you know, just like something that was really um, scary and, you know, ugly and um, frightening. And just kind of, you know, I find myself like some of the connections I've made with people on different social media apps. You know, I'm like, I, I feel closer to them than I did with people that I had been hanging out with, you know, months before. And it's just, and I don't know if it's partially just because it's like a common, common bonding over the struggle, but it definitely, it definitely um, has been a, a big blessing. Unsurprisingly, many questions I've received from listeners lately involve the pandemic. This one from Jessica seemed especially timely as we approach Thanksgiving here in the U.S. My wife and I both have chronic diseases that make staying home for the holidays especially crucial because of COVID. My wife's boyfriend, we're Polly, she's bi, has been pressuring us to get together with a group of people. I'm an absolute no on this purely for health reasons but my wife accused me of being jealous. When we tried to discuss it, it turned into a fight. I want to make sure our holidays are special, and this is adding so much stress. Jessica, thank you so much for this question. Here's what Dr. Megan Fleming had to say. Jessica, thanks so much for your question. And let me just start by saying you are not alone. Everyone is questioning the safety and risks of getting COVID-19 socializing with anyone that you don't live with. The pull and even pressure to get together in small groups for the holidays is especially high right now. And for poly couples, COVID has been a real challenge, both emotionally and physically. Because in a pandemic, people can't hook up with multiple partners safely without rigorous health considerations and practices in place. So unless partners are willing to move in and commit to an exclusive relationship within your polycule, body-to-body sexual contact is not recommended, and everyone needs to have a straightforward conversation about that. And I'm not kind of clear from your question how big your polycule is, and if your wife's boyfriend pressuring you all to get together is with a group of individuals you already know and trust, or if he's wanting to expand your pod. Either way, this is time for radical transparency. You all need to have explicit conversations about your habits, wearing masks, social distancing, whether you're getting together with others, and very importantly, their social habits, and your activities like indoor dining and shopping. In order to minimize harm, you need to minimize risk, and polycules everywhere are negotiating new rules and boundaries that consider health risks like you both having chronic diseases. I'm curious if your wife has ever accused you of being jealous before. Does that even at all feel true? even a little true? Because if so, that's the first thing to clarify and address. It's important to parse feelings about being with multiple partners from the safety issues about getting together with others. If the accusation doesn't feel at all true, it's an opportunity to explore with your wife why she's jumping to that conclusion when jealousy has never historically been an issue for you both. 
And it's also the opportunity to explore, you know, where's her distress coming from? What is it that your wife feels she needs? Is it emotional, physical, or both? A number of couples are opening up to dating online and connecting virtually with new partners as a safe alternative to getting together in person. Popular apps to find ethical non-monogamous partners include Feld, OkCupid, Passion, FetLife, and Tinder, to name but a few. So, Jessica, to be more specific in helping you navigate the decision of getting together as a group, here are some of the current CDC guidelines you can share with your wife and we should all be keeping in mind. We should quarantine from anyone who's been exposed to someone with COVID-19 in the last 14 days or is showing symptoms. And because many people with the virus are asymptomatic, it can be really tricky to know for certain. The CDC also recommends considering the gathering location, knowing, of course, that all indoor gatherings are more risky. And where are your attendees coming from and the number of COVID cases in their respective communities? We should also consider um, the attendees' behaviors leading up to the gathering and whether or not anyone can stay at least six feet or two arms length apart, wear masks, wash hands, and follow state, local, territorial, or tribal health and safety laws, rules, and regulations. So, whew, that's a lot to consider. So definitely talk to your partner about the fact that certain medical conditions increase the risk of severe illness from COVID-19 and therefore should avoid all in-person gatherings with anyone who doesn't live in your household. Hope that helps. Wishing you all safe and happy holidays. Thanks so much, Dr. Megan. Jessica, I hope you and yours find meaningful and safe ways to enjoy the holidays. Those difficult conversations really can be some of the most important and hopefully end up strengthening our relationships in the long run. A few more CDC considerations we can all keep in mind about gatherings this year include event duration, because being within six feet of someone who has COVID-19 for a cumulative total of 15 minutes or more, greatly increases the risk of becoming sick and requires a 14-day quarantine. And how many people are attending? The size of a gathering should be based on folks' ability to stay six feet apart, wash their hands, and wear masks. Learn more about these and additional considerations and safety precautions at the link down in the show notes. To support this show and get sweet rewards such as bonus content, entries and prize drawings, and Girl Boner merch, join the new community on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash girlboner. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week. <laughs>